Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. How are you? Happy Father's Day. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're joining us here on our campus or uh, online, uh, welcome to Sunridge. Uh, this is a church where you can explore faith and also grow deep. And your faith, that's what we desire to do. I want to just point out for those of you who are coming in right now, we have a technical difficulty that, that those of you at home are not going to experience, but those that are here are. This screen to my left is out, but that screen is still working. So it's going to be fine for all of you guys and me. We're going to have a very normal relationship. But everyone on this side, you're all going to be kind of like doing this to me today. And that's going to feel weird. So like every once in a while, just look back away from the screen, make eye contact with me. And I won't think you're like just kind of dissing me by like looking away. Um, you know, growth uh, creates problems. And a lot of times they're, they're good problems, but they're problems nonetheless. And growth even com- uh, creates problems in a family. You know, when I was single and I got out of college, everything that I had that I owned would f- fit in my uh, Nissan 260Z. I rocked that thing. That thing was super cool. And I could move in 10 minutes. That's how fluid I was. And then I got married. And, uh, you know, what I learned very quickly is you need a lot more room for two people than you do one. But it's not like two times as much. There's like some kind of special math associated with this. It has exponential factors assigned to it. Um, It's kind of like the earthquake uh, magnitude measurement. You know, each click adds like 10 times as much. And then, as a married couple, you, you might have a kid or two. And then that first child uh, changes everything, right? Growth. Growth happens again. And it rocks your world. It creates all kinds of problems, that first child. If you're the first child, how many of you first born here? You were very challenging when you came into your family. And in our, in our family, we have three daughters. So the second daughter uh, we had was like, it was no big deal. It, re- it really didn't change much. Everything kind of stayed the same. We actually had a helper. You know, that's like cheap child labor. And then, then we had a third child. And that, to, to us, was as life-changing as going from zero to one. I mean, all of a sudden, you need a bigger house. You got to get the, the minivan, Right? And there's no more man-on-man coverage. It's all zoned. So you're, you're, you're telegraphing your coverage to, uh, to the team that you're playing against, your children, right away. They know, they know your game plan from the beginning. And you need tons more storage, and you got to organize all that stuff to keep up with all these multiple generations that are growing up in your household from their clothes to uh, their sports equipment to their different toys And then if that family with three kids moves, it's going to take a lot longer than 10 minutes. 
and I promise you their stuff is not going to fit in a 260Z. So we're going through Acts right now, the, the book that gives us the biblical record of the history of the church, its first 30 years. It's so long ago, but it's our story. These are our people, and you know, it's not long before there are history that problems start. They have growth problems. Just a couple of months before what uh, David just read, there's only 120 of them, and it's so easy to gather and to retreat and to pray. They can find a, a facility to house them, and they can share their resources, and it's relatively easy to be a church in the first century. But you know that we saw that almost immediately they had this rapid expansion. And there's over, over 3,000 of them, at least. So they have to get organized. And exacerbating that problem of growth are their diversity problems. Because now the gospel is expanding beyond their, their cultural borders. And this is going to make being a family of faith, a faith family, ever uh, more difficult. Now they, now they have two problems in one. They have growth and diversity, just like a growing family. And how they address that is not just interesting. It is interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you because that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, at least look interesting. You guys looking at me every once in a while over there? Okay, thank you. Um, it's enlightening and it's spiritual and it's super practical the way they address this. So let's, let's circle back through and let's look at the problem. In Acts 6.1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, uh, and my version says the Hellenistic Jews, your Bible might say Grecian Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So we see that the number of disciples is increasing. They're growing. And the fact that a complaint arises in the midst of that growth is not big news, Right? So for me, it's a little comforting here in 2022 to realize that in the first century, growth created problems for them as well. But they're not just complainers. This is a real issue. What was their complaint? It was that their widows, the, the Hellenistic or Grecian widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So here's the big problem. This is what they were facing, that the, the care for under-resourced widows in their community was inequitable. You got that, right? It was inequitable. And to understand what's going on here, you need to know what was the practice in the first century, particularly when it came to widows, the most, one of the most vulnerable demographics in that time. And you can see that the, the core value that came from Judaism flows into the church. So even James, uh, one of the apostles that wrote the, one of the books in the back of your New Testament, he wrote to Jewish believers scattered around the world, and he said that the church is to care for the under-resourced. In James 1.27, he said, Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and fartless. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Forget I said that. Ah. Oh. It's not as bad as Easter for those that were here, so, but we're not talking about that. Holy cow. 
Oh, man. Oh. If any of my firemen friends are watching, I'm, uh, you know. Okay, pure and faultless. That's the word, is this. Thank you. You know, I like to throw a mistake in every once in a while, just so you guys know I'm human. <laughs> to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Okay, come back to me. So that practice was continued all through the first century, and then you even see it evolve. If, as you read through some of the letters that Paul writes, you see that he starts to like kind of put structure around how they care for widows. But it was something, it was a value to them. And eventually, it's like, you know, um, the family should take care of the widows, and um, first, they're first in line, and they should have a legitimate need. And, uh, but if, if not, then the church should be taking care of them. And um, up to now, to this point in the history of the church, the church is pretty homogenous. That is, you know, they're... The, by far, the large majority of them came from a traditional Jewish background. And, uh, but now that whole Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and the entire world, that's all coming into play. So that's why they have growth and diversity problems. You're going to see this because there are two groups mentioned here that are involved, two, two categories of widows. First of all, there's the Hebraic Jew, Jewish widows, right? And they, those are Jews that are born in Palestine, many of them right there in Jerusalem. That's their home. That's Mecca. That's, that's like, that's the epitome of being Jewish in the first century. And they speak the native tongue, or they probably speak Aramaic. Um, um, and so they're very culturally um, native to Jewish tradition. And that's all part of their Christian faith as that begins to grow. So they, all of that travels with them. But these are hometown people. The, you know, this is their place. Um, and then there's the Hellenistic Jews or Grecian Jews. And they're Jewish by descent, but they, they were either born or have lived like out in other areas of the region, more in different provinces that may have been like very not Jewish but they had this Jewish faith, so they'd have been an outlier where they were living. They, and, and in some cases, they spoke a different language, Koine Greek. Um, some of them might have had Aramaic in their repertoire, but um, it wouldn't be their primary language in, in general. So you remember when we uh, did the message called Pentecost from the first part of Acts, where the gift of tongues was expressed, and people heard in their own language. These are people that have... You know, even though they're all Jewish, they speak different languages because they're from different regions in the world. And of course, not just, there's not just a language barrier. Remember, like, if you come from a different part of the world, you're bringing all these different culture and, and uh, traditions and customs from where you were raised. It, it'd be like you're an American, only you're born, you know, internationally, like, missionary, your, your, your parents are in business or whatever, but like you're American, but like you grew up in Indonesia and then you come to America. There's just going to be differences that you're going to experience. And there's biases that come 
from those cultural differences. And that was causing favoritism in how they took care of the widows. But you have to love the way they address this problem. In verse 12, the 12, that is the first apostles, gathered all the disciples together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. That's going to be an important phrase. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So a few things that jump out of this passage that I think are noteworthy. First of all, the leaders gather to discuss the problem, which indicates that they acknowledge what they were hearing, and then they processed that feedback. And then secondly, they they prioritize things. The, The apostles, that is the 12, they have urgent priorities separate from this. So they can't do it personally, but they see that it does need to be done, and the best thing that they can do is delegate this responsibility. So it's, it's like a new position is arising in the church. Remember, there's no organization. So now they're getting organized, and now here, here's a spot. This is a role. This is a job. And, and it's obvious here that the apostles, are ma- they're leading this, that they're making the decisions. So they, so they delegate the, this uh, nomination process, and, the, and they give the oversight of it to the church. And they just kind of like line off a few qualifications. First of all, they need seven of them. So that might be like, we need that tells us a little bit about like how many widows there are. It's going to take seven people to do this. These people need to be known. That is, they need to have a good reputation or to be proven. They need to be full of the spirit and they need to be full of wisdom. That is, their character needs to be impeccable, and they have to have wise decision-making you know, capabilities. And uh, you know, those are still good qualifications for leadership today. In fact, we ought to bring them back you know, all the way around. So this decision to handle this problem this way, it creates a miracle, you guys. This is, this is one of the biggest miracles in the Bible. Are you ready for it? Here it is in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. (laughs) When does that happen? It's always a win when your plan comes through, right? And everybody's happy. So after going through this process, they they pick the seven. And Luke, who's the writer of Acts, same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke, he, he tells us about two people in particular in the list. One is um, Nicholas, and he's from Antioch, he notes, which is primarily a Greek city. So it's like there's a little intentional diversity being put into this team. They're kind of like representative government. This is someone that understands maybe their language or their cultures and their traditions, and we need this person as part of this team. And then Luke also pauses to note Stephen, is being exceptionally gifted. And we're going to see that as we go through um, the early part of Acts. He is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Which, and he's like separated out from the other list. So he's an exceptional in this way. And then in verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so here I want you to see that these leaders in the first church, 
They seem to have the final approval of what is happening. They're directing the church, and they're recognizing these leaders in a formal manner. And they're commissioned with prayer, it says, and, it's, and maybe you're not familiar with this, but laying on of hands. That comes, that comes all the way through the Old Testament. It's a practice that, again, comes from Judaism. And it is a way to symbolically place blessing on a person or to say that they have authority or to confirm them in a role. And sometimes you'll see us, even in the church today, lay hands on when we have new elders or staff or, you know, like we'll pray for people. And that laying on of hands, you know, it's like we're not just trying to touch people. It's like a tradition that has come forward all the way, you know, thousands of years from, from the Jewish tradition. So that's what that is. So we see here the church faces their first internal problem, and it won't be the last. And we see that they thoughtfully and prayerfully address it, and then they delegate that responsibility to qualified people for the job, and then look at the result in verse 7. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the way Luke writes this, and you can see this uh, just even in the English, that he's attributing these positive results to the fact that they dealt with a problem that they were facing. He's saying, he's connecting it directly. They did this, this is what they did, and it resulted in this thing. And I just want, like, I'm, you know, like I want to I point out here that, because sometimes... I hear people talk like, like being organized is unspiritual. It is not. The church is getting organized from the very beginning. And we see that being organized and administrative doesn't hinder the gospel. In fact, it seems to be, Luke seems to be pointing out to the fact that, in an explicit way, that it advances the gospel. So that's how far we're going to go today in our heritage. Shorter passage, because I want to talk specifically about this issue, and we're going to spend the rest of our time considering how we can learn from this. So if you're, if you're new to church, I'm not done yet, even though I finished the passage. So you can expect me to go on for like about another 15 minutes, just talking about how this applies to us today. What can we take from the church 2,000 years ago who dealt with one of their first internal problems? What can we learn from that today? You guys ready? Okay, three of us. Okay. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to like, I'm going to take just a little side trip to talk about an important concept that comes up in this passage, and then I'm going to bring out the big main idea that I think Luke was trying to tell us about when he records this. Of all the things that he can leave for us as a record, he, he puts this, this event in. So number one, this is the side, little side issue. This is the first appearance of deacons in your Bible. And maybe, you, how, how many of you have heard that word for it, deacon? And not just a football player, Deacon Jones, like deacon. Uh, it, the Greek word is diakonia. It means servant, or literally, it means table waiter. Now, the title for that role in the first century church, it becomes a role. We're going to talk about that. Um, it comes from the way this is written in the beginning. It's, it's like the way they talked about them. Look at it again in verse 2. It would not be right for us, the apostle said, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That's deacon. That's serve. 
So it literally means that. Table waiter, I put, I put some notes on your note sheet. A, a deacon in the first century church was someone who led a ministry. They, uh, they weren't in a speaking role, but they oversaw kind of practical issues and logistical things in the church. And that phrase, table waiter, not to wait tables, it sticks for someone in that first century church who is carrying out this duty in the church. So a deacon is someone who gets things done, and their service resulted in God's love being expressed to people. We're going to see that. I love what William Barclay says in his commentary on Acts. He says, it's extremely interesting to note that the first office bearers to be appointed were chosen not to talk, but for practical service. A couple of things about this role uh, of deacon. Number one, deacon grew to be an official position in the church with qualifications that were similar to elder. In 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8, in the same way, Paul writes to Timothy, deacons, table waiters, are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, that much wine is like, put that in quotes, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, and they, fir- they must first be tested. So they, they have to be proven. They have to be known. This is not just something you just throw somebody into. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So deacons are leaders, but they are servant leaders. And in fact, lots of churches have some adaptation of this for their leadership, whether it's elder. We, um, for our leaders at Sunridge, we have something we call a leadership uh, fit analysis, which is just, it's kind of a version of this for anyone that leads. Anyone can volunteer, but not everyone can lead. There are just certain qualifications that we want in place, just like they did. The second thing about deacons is that there were both males and females in this role of deacon. In Romans 16, 1 through 2, Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and he says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon or deaconess of the church in Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. So she's going to lead people when she arrives in Rome, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So Phoebe is a woman, a deacon, who is sent by Paul to the church in Rome, and she has a significant role of going there to help others. She has helped Paul and others, and she's being sent in some leadership capacity there. Uh, That's what it means to receive her, accept her and her role as she arrives she, uh, some scholars think that she actually carried um, the book of Romans to the church. She was the person that delivered it and answered questions about it. But note that the, the ideal qualifications for this candidate or this, the, the qualifications for the ideal candidate for this role are spiritual, which you know, what they're overseeing is something that's very practical. See, character is the single most important qualification for leadership in the church. Character is number one. It's not gender. It's not talent. It's, it's not your gifts that you can sing or you can speak eloquently 
or that you're a superstar in the tech booth. It's like character is number one. So these deacons are godly people and they're doers. So the reason why I'm harping on this is just to say that serving in order to meet real needs is not a lesser role in church ministry. Serving is the ministry. These people are critical. You know, some of Jesus' most powerful moments that we see in the Gospels don't come through his teaching. They come from his interaction with people, the way people experience love from him, the way that he entered into their life and took their needs. He had a conversation. So if you were a widow in the first century, what do you think would help you most? A really awesome sermon or a hearty breakfast? That's how important their role was. And these widows experience God's love and care from the body of Christ through these simple ways of serving. So for every one of you that is a volunteer here, and whether you think it's a big role or a small role, whatever your idea of that is, or if you do so outside the four walls of Sunridge and other ministries or in your job, if you're seeing yourself as someone who is touching the lives of other people, you are making a huge difference in the world. And in many cases, far greater than some guy's 40-minute sermon. You are right there in people's lives affecting them. And they're I can talk about it from up here, but when you do it, it's at a whole other level. If your motivation is to serve others, you are demonstrating God's love. They're experiencing it. Now, that's the deacon thing. The big idea here is, and you may, you may be seeing this coming, is that this is the first time the church has to grapple with being multicultural. It won't be the last. There's a lot more changes coming. Uh, in, in my career in the fire department, I started in, a, in a, an organization that was called Fire Agency. And we were in San Bernardino County. And it's like we all wore the same patch, but we were all these separate districts. We were a special district. And so, like, I worked in Fontana, Bloomington, Muscoy. That was called the Central Valley Division. And then, but we had Arrowhead, you know, um, Yucca Valley. We had areas all over the county, but, but we didn't work together. We, we worked separately. And in the course of my career, they changed that, which it made sense to consolidate everything, and we became truly the county fire department. And in that, in that period, I was the first person to go from one district to the other in a promotion. So we all worked for the same fire department. We all wore the same patch. We all went to the same fire academy. We all spoke the same language, but every district was so different. So I, I got sent up to Lake Arrowhead. I used to call it the asbestos forest because no, nothing ever burned up there. And uh, it was a totally different world. And I felt really out of place. And, and, and in a month, another guy came up there. And they were like, you know, you're contaminating our purity. And we'd say, no, we're infiltrating you. And I remember one of the first assignments, there was, there was tension with just me showing up, even though it's like, 
I was, we're in the same fire department. And my captain had me um, like paint these curbs in a new fire station with the yellow so people wouldn't trip on them. And so like I got all set up out there and the, the, the name of my district was Central Valley Fire District. And so I just tagged them all, gang, gang style. And I put Central Valley Locos on everything. And I said, hey, Cap, I'm done. And he came out. He was like a smoker. And uh, he had a cigarette in his mouth. And like he came out, and that cigarette started like bouncing around. He got so mad at me. And I'm like, dude, I'm just messing with you. I'm going to paint him. You know, like, I know that was kind of like a long curve around, but it's like, this is what was happening. Just like we see how this happens. And if you look um, even at all of your New Testament letters, you see Paul constantly pleading with Christians to, to get along, to be united in their differences. It's in virtually every letter that he writes. And this move is a simple one because they're all Jewish. It's going to get way worse when lots of Gentiles start to become Christians. It's going to get really weird and tense. Now, at the beginning of the message, I talked about the problems that come with growth and diversity, but actually growth and diversity are not the problems. They're the source of the problem. This blending, or in some cases, clash of different cultures is the number one challenge that the first century church faced internally. And you know what? Sometimes it seems like it still is the challenge in the church. Now, external problems are coming next week. We're going to see that next week. It gets huge. Persecution starts. But this is an internal problem. And remember, last week, we looked at a passage that said that they were all united in heart and mind. But right away, these people that come from different experiences, they, their utopia is being challenged. What was the basic problem? Was it worship style? No. Was it teaching, liberal teaching? Was it sin in the church? Maybe a little bit of that, but they dealt with it with Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't even bitter prejudice. That's coming later. It's a case of simple bias. The inequitable distribution of food to widows was caused by unconscious cognitive bias. What is cognitive bias? Simply put, Cognitive bias is like our brains are wired a certain way based on experiences and everything that like we just think a certain way. We become a certain kind of person and that affects our judgment and how we see things in the world. All of us have it. I have it. You have it. Your grandma has it. We all have it. And it affects everything from education to hiring, healthcare, social behavior. Psychologists have, have identified over 175 cognitive biases. And, and psychologists tell us there's two kinds, and I think they apply, one applies here. There's two types of cognitive bias. One is um, conscious bias. That's explicit bias. You might know it as prejudice. So that's when um, the acts of bias are malicious, and they're intentional. And you know that you have it like burning a cross in someone's yard. That's malicious or conscious bias. Using a racial slur or denying someone a position because of their religion. 
but less malicious of cognitive um, uh, bias that's conscious would be like nepotism. This is my son, I'm hiring him um, because he's my son, or just playing your daughter more in soccer because you're the coach. That's, that's cognitive conscious bias, right? But then there's unconscious bias, which is also implicit bias. And uh, this is when we're not even aware of the way our experiences and, and patterns of thinking affect us. So there's a beauty bias. If, some, if we think someone is attractive, we're going to like kind of automatically put um, competencies on them that they may not have just because we find them to be attractive. There's affinity bias. If you're like, there's someone that you click with and so right away you put a halo on them and it's like, you know, they're going to be perfect for this job. There's stereotyping, and then there's confirmation bias, which, you know, when we have our way of thinking, we, you know, we, we just kind of have that, and there's like a router in our head that kind of makes it hard for any other idea to get in there. We discount, we tend to discount information that doesn't line up with our bias in our head. So for me, like I said, we all have this. You guys okay? Okay. So, like, I'm always going to be a white male who is married. I'm counting on that with Cindy. Um, who's college educated. That's unavoidable for me. It is nothing to be ashamed of. It is nothing to apologize for. It's just a fact about me. Additionally, I'm 65. I'm on Medicare now. Do you guys realize how much the church is saving on my health care now? You can keep me longer just because I'm cheaper. But that, being 65, doesn't that, that creates a generational bias between me and Blake Cherry, right? I mean, I'm super cool for 65, but like, I'm not 18? 17, yeah, I'm definitely not 17. Uh, I worked in a certain industry, in public safety, and that has like experiences that are unique to that industry. You probably have the same thing. I have certain interests, things that I'm just super interested in for whatever. I have certain political views, and that's, I carry them passionately, and I think that they're well-reasoned. And you know what? I have my preferences of how I think the world should be. That's called being human. We all have that. And I'll tell you why this looks like unconscious bias to me is these Greek widows that are falling through the cracks um, it's not intentional. And here's why I say that, because there's, no, there's just no indication when they start to talk about it that they're grumpy about it or that they're resisting what's happening. But it was happening nonetheless. And this is the big idea that I think that we can take away from a church that existed 2,000 years before us. These, these are our people that we can learn from it wasn't intentional. And we can tell that by the way they responded to it. They weren't defensive. They had an aha moment for all we can see. And, you know, as I said before, Jerusalem is a very traditional culture. And now they have this cosmopolitan mix coming in. And uh, they have a lot of common, but they have significant differences. They're not good and bad differences. They're just differences. But don't you love the humble way in which they addressed it? 
absent here is, well, that's not my fault. They don't say, well, maybe they should just worship somewhere else. They don't say, quit your whining. They, say, they don't say, well, maybe you should just take care of yourselves. So let me ask you, church, do you think that we could learn from this today? Okay, maybe, maybe not. Do you think that there's differences in the church today? Do you think we have differences? I think we do. Um, would you say that sometimes if we don't handle it right, it can pull us apart? Yeah? How often have you identified a disparity among Christians and it's just hard for you to see from your vantage point? And so I want to take what they did and bring it right up to us in a super practical way in how we deal with those differences. Number one, listen. It all starts with listen. James 1.19, this should not be new to you if you've been in church at any, for any length of time. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Take note of this. Take ding, 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 special bulletin. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become anger, angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And note that James says that if we don't do this, doesn't it seem like it's going to produce anger. The, the other option is, I hear something that doesn't go in my brain, I get angry about it. And what does he say about that anger when I'm faced with these differences? He says it doesn't work the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce what God is trying to produce in us. Do you think that we could listen better? All of us? Yeah. Thank you. Was that Alma? Okay, thank you. Poke your grandma and make her say yes, too, okay? All right. Here's a meme I saw this week, and I thought it just so helped me think about listening, okay? No one has ever been more surprised than a husband hearing about his wife's plans for the second time. <laughs> Let that just kind of soak in, people. Think of all the other options the church had in this moment besides listening. We know what they are. Who of you is the perfect listener? Did you raise your hand? Okay, there's one in the back. Thank you. One, the perfect listener. How many of you would say, I have room to grow in listening? Raise your hand. How many of you don't know what I was saying because you weren't listening just now? Okay, so come back to me. Here's the thing. If we listen, we almost automatically get the second thing, which is to learn. Listen, then number two, learn, because listening and learning is an expression of what you think about the other, people that, the other person that's talking to you. And it says a lot about yourself, too. Paul said in, in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 3, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of the others. 
So learning listening and learning demonstrates value to the other person. And you know, you will always learn something if you listen. You will always learn something. We don't need to repeat that if I'm talking, I can't listen, right? But like if I'm listening, I'm going to learn something. Just say that somebody's telling you something that, that you don't want to get in your brain. And let's say that only 5% of it is good. Like 5% of it is fantasy. It's, it's, it's factually wrong or whatever. It's like, I mean, like 5% of it is true. And 95% of it is baloney. If you listen to that, rather than argue over the other 95%, aren't you 5% smarter? Am I, am I good at math or what? You're 5% ahead. So do you think that the early church leaders learned something about their congregation by listening to them? I do. Do you think it helped the church? I do. Do you think people felt loved because they did listen to someone who like, what, just wasn't part of their paradigm in that moment? Who here has nothing to learn about anything? Raise your hand. This is, okay, thank you, Eloise. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised because, like, you know, so many of us have become expert epidemiologists, economists, sociologists over the last few years, right? I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me. We've all become experts, right? Who here would say, you know, I don't know everything, Okay. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now? Because, again, you haven't been listening. How many of you would say that there's possibly a remote chance that sometimes, on a rare occasion, that unconscious cognitive bias or confirmation bias could affect you? What do you intend to do about that? Because that's the point. And that's what leads us to the last thing we need to do when we have differences. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And while they do, the last thing after listening and learning is to love. And in parentheses, that means act. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, Verses 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul says, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how gifted you are, it doesn't matter how eloquent you are. Like in the Christian economy, if, you, if we don't have love, you're missing it. Do you think that the church showed love to its people in this eternal, in internal crisis in Acts 6? How many of you think that they demonstrated love to them? Okay. Do you think that was hard for some of them? Can't you just hear the discussions? Do you realize how much was at risk in this moment in our heritage? If they had not gotten this right, what would have happened? 
If they had not been willing to listen to the people that, were, that had, this came from a different world, this is not about compromise or anything like that, so don't, like, I'm not a compromiser, but listening to people, learning from them. Do you think that, where would we be if they hadn't done that? I think that Christianity would be this nice little comfy group that would have been tucked away in Jerusalem for about another 30 years, and then it would have just died out because nobody would join them, because nobody would be able to get in. But they did. They listened. They learned, and they loved one another in a way that they acted And what happened is, in verse 7, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Luke had to put that in because that's so unusual. The Jewish leaders had too much to risk to become Christians. But the way Luke ties this, it's like because they address something, that was cognitively difficult for them to do, it made a huge difference, and we're here today. And you know what? You look around, we're all different. We vote different. We think differently about the economy. It's like, but that's not the main thing, right? We have to keep the main thing the main thing, and when we do that, we stay focused on what we're supposed to be focused on, and we do, we, we, we accomplish the d- unity and diversity that God wants. And God uses that. And this world needs that today more than ever. So when we leave here today, I want you to just think about two questions. Like, number one, could, could I have, like, bias? And number two, what am I going to do about it? I- am I willing, like, even if I don't think I have bias, Am I willing to listen to people who think, you know, like, am, am I willing to learn from them? And I willing to, and am I willing to love them in a way that, that makes their life better? That's what God calls us to. Would you uh, stand and worship together with us? Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.